0: You saw the thing I put out about us going to, to uh, the Nebraska conference, right? The little animated oh. video I made. No. Oh, you, you, <laughs> that's good to know. Well, our listeners saw it. I put. I, <laughs> yeah, I did. We had a, an Instagram story where I made a. It was just I just talked about how we're going to be in Nebraska, which, by the way, everybody, we're going to be in Nebraska, uh, Kearney, Nebraska, by the way, July 7th through the 9th for the Nebraska Statewide EMS Conference. More on that later. But yeah, we're going to be there. And so I did an Instagram story and. There's our cartoon heads on an airplane flying uh, from a map I made from uh, Oregon over to uh, to Nebraska, and I thought it was quite uh, fun. The animation's terrible, so here's what I can tell you about having to draw a map. You know yeah. we have to worry about like the size of the lines. Uh, yeah, a screw Delaware. Rhode Island uh, and Connecticut. You guys are so small. I don't know why, by the way, anyone bothered to draw lines in those land masses. They're not big enough. Why are you drawing lines? Because for those of us that have to draw maps and trace over those things, that is it's really difficult because like the thickness of the line covers your state. And I don't know why anyone would do this. It doesn't, and here's the thing, I'm not, I'm not trying to dog on the residents of Delaware, Rhode Island and Connecticut. You, you listeners are wonderful. We cherish you. I'm just saying you need to be equally as mad as I am that somebody makes you go into a different state to go seven feet down the road. I am willing to bet that when you guys have a high school football game and someone throws a long pass, you can't tell if it's now an away game because they caught it in another state, which given is still a standard size football field, still only 100 yards, but you're probably somewhere else. Oh, God, I am actually worried. Uh, you know get- what?
1: I'm here to tell you your state is perfectly sized. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just as good as it's any other state. The you know, right. it's not the size of the state. Some states are actually too big.
0: <laughs> you know and they're just it's not even no. <laughs> oh my god uh i think we're gonna get <laughs> i think we're gonna get canceled by those dates and the reason i know we're getting canceled by those dates all someone's gonna have to do is shout out a window to stop listening to ems 2020 and everyone will hear so oh god Uh so guys, this time I'm at, I'm gonna be bringing the calls. Spencer's used to bringing the calls. It's been about a year since I've done it, literally. And uh, yeah, <laughs> this is the once in a while where I'm gonna do it. So uh, here's the intro. This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. All right. Thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of EMS 2020, a long pause media production. I don't know if I should say that or not, but it's in there because we, uh, yeah, we officially own a company that now owns this, but anyway, so that's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We sold out to us, (laughs) but anyway, to us, yeah, that's right.
1: I, uh, uh, I'm picking out curtains for our LLC house. I think that's what happens now.
0: (laughs) The (laughs) the state just gives you an LLC house. That's nice. (laughs) Oh, God. Anyway, everyone, thanks again for joining us for another episode. Uh, On this show, we review real out-of-hospital calls that you guys send us. And if you would like your call to be on this show, go ahead and check us out on our social media. It's EMS20 slash 20 on Facebook and EMS2020 show on Instagram. On Facebook, you'll find a pinned post with a link to a form. And on Instagram, you'll find a link to a Beacons page in our bio. That form will allow you to submit a call directly to us and we can review it once we review it and we decide we want to do it we will set up a time to talk to you don't worry we don't just like fire from the hip and say hey this is good <laughs> we'll just go from here and then one day you hear your episode uh, we sit down we chat with you and uh, and we go from there also check out our rapid sequence information YouTube channel it's at rapid sequence info on YouTube and uh, we do have some upcoming episodes we're gonna try some new things on there I am still working on the long box I am so sorry but it's gonna be so cool uh, also July July <laughs> <laughs> time's a-wasting. Uh, if you need to make plans to get out to Kearney, Nebraska, uh, you should, because July 7th through the 9th in Kearney, Nebraska, there's going to be the Nebraska Statewide EMS Conference, and Spencer and I are going to be guests there. We'll be teaching and just generally hanging out. We'll be there all three days. Come say hi. Come learn. Uh, you get to learn 12 leads from Spencer. You get to learn about being a PIC for me, among other topics. So, yeah, check out NebraskaEMS.com. You can get registered there and, uh, yeah, make plans and, uh, and head on out. Yeah, with that I normally would say at this point uh Spencer, let's uh, let's hear the story, but in this case So me. now
1: it's my turn. Okay, go Chris. for it, buddy. Yeah, Chris. Story bring us <laughs> wow. <laughs> bring bring story us. Uh, you know what? Now yeah. you
0: you're doing great. Yeah. 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 Hey Chris, uh mm. what you got? Anyway, that's what I'm saying uh, to me.
1: Yeah. So no, yeah. No, 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 yeah
0: perfect. So guys, today we're going to talk about uh, a couple things at the end Here's some uh, some goals We're going to talk about Trauma system levels From what they actually mean Which is something that we have had requested Not just by you guys But also by me To me And I've never actually done the research To figure out exactly What the trauma <laughs> levels mean uh, But I finally did And I have them for you guys uh, So we'll talk about that today uh, And then we're also going to talk about uh, Some uh, some neurogenic shock Though spoiler alert That's not what happens to this patient uh, You will see why I bring it up later So uh, I have a feeling Everyone's going to catch the theme really, Really early on this one but today's call comes from nancy huff and robert Doback. and for those of you that have already guessed today's theme as i absolutely imagine many of you just have uh no the relation of these characters do not reflect the relationship of the real people who gave us this call but it's going to be hilarious so we're going to make the stretch so let's start nice. with nancy uh isn't it dr robert dobak it is it is learned yeah. dr Dr. Robert (laughs) All Alrighty, so let's start with Nancy At the time of the call, Nancy was an EMT intermediate And I'm going to explain what that is really quick Uh, I think everyone's probably heard But I do want to make it kind of clear When it comes to the EMT And the paramedic levels Those are generally The same-ish throughout the country. I mean, there's little variations here and there. Some states will have some extreme variations, but for the most part, those are fairly stable uh, levels uh, in the responder chain. When it comes to things like EMT advanced, an EMT intermediate, specifically EMT intermediate, that's where states just love to go crazy, and uh, they just change. Yeah, and they just kind of change what's going on. Those are just modified scopes of practice that usually fall somewhere between the EMT and the uh, paramedic level. Uh, are you gargling oatmeal through like a coffee stir? <laughs> is that? I might be having a
1: sip of coffee while could, you're while you're talking. Could be. Go on. Perfect. No, no, I was just do it in my ear again. <laughs> So EMT Intermediate is where things go uh,
0: a little bit wild, and usually the reason that that is is because the EMT Intermediate is most valuable in rural systems where you don't have a lot of access to paramedic schools or there's not a lot of money to uh, really pay for paramedics because got to remember we're all paying off school debt so you have to pay us at least a little bit (laughs) and so and so we can be expensive sometimes and so EMT intermediate scopes are usually designed to kind of fill that clinical gap uh where paramedics are not as common so in this area the EMT intermediate they can run pretty much a full cardiac arrest including all the drugs uh, according to american heart association guidelines they cannot do intubations or surgical airways they can of course do like superglottic airways and then like, obviously, like basic adjuncts, they can, of course, like start IVs and give co-drugs. Oddly enough, though, they cannot give adenosine. Huh. Yeah. Everything else. Yeah. Fine. Ebinephrine. Fine. <laughs> Magsulfate. sulfate Fine. Adenosine. Adenosine. No, no. Off the menu. Yeah. Get, get rid of it. Uh, but yeah,
1: that's uh, <laughs> that's it. Uh, it's just behind a locked box. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, that that is uh, Nancy Half. So at the time of this call, uh, they had been uh, they are actually a fairly recently minted EMT intermediate. Uh, the other person who gave us this call learned doctor, uh, Mr. Doback. Uh, our co-call giver they are an emt and they are also chief of the fire department in this area Which by the way this fire department is prestige worldwide fire and rescue uh, is in a very <laughs> rural area uh, they are a public fire department that also provides amulet transport They cover a large area which if you were to measure in square miles you'd get about a thousand and if you measured it in rhode islands You would get about two-thirds. So uh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, it actually depends on how you measure rhode island uh, anyway, so <laughs> At any given moment, they have to they uh, they have two transport ambulances available and they provide ALS level of care. The staffing of these ambulances is uh, varied in terms of partners. But again, ALS level care will be provided. Just to be clear, I'm not sure if ALS level meant a paramedic because they do have some paramedics um, was on each of these rigs or if an EMT intermediate was considered ALS level. So I'm not really sure there. Um mm. And like I said earlier, the, this area does have a fairly expansive scope of practice for their intermediate level, uh, due to its rural nature. So, yeah. uh, importantly though, there is not one, but two rotor wing medevac services in the area. Uh, and there's also the Air National Guard. So three options that can be requested if neither of those services are available. Uh, the Air National Guard and one of the rotor wing, uh, base services uh, can hoist. Foreshadow.
1: Ooh, foreshadow. Okay. Foreshadow. I- sure. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> let me cut in here real quick and explain that, uh, you know, uh, services like ours, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, where we fly around and provide, you know, uh, medical care to patients. Uh, <clears throat> we do not have a hoist. So we don't yeah. show up and someone goes like, hey, he's down here. And then like we, you know, rappel down like awesome badasses and right. Like, don't worry. We're here now. And Absolutely. then like lift the patient out. No, this is someone else basically like, we're, we're like, yeah, hey, you get us the patient and we'll, we'll do the rest. But yeah. like, you come to us. Yeah. Hoisting is actually pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, the benefit to the hoist capability is that if you have somebody down a ravine, um, you can have somebody go down and go like, yoink. Uh, and yep. that's the actual noise that a hoist makes when it lifts somebody <laughs> it does. Up. Fun fact. It's a little yeah. more
0: cartoony than the way you did it, but still, yeah, it's more of a york yeah. kind of thing. Like, yeah, but...
1: Oh. I, like a kazoo going up, like, yeah, boop. <laughs> exactly. So
0: the, the, and the nice thing about that is then you don't need like the strict LZ requirements that we would need to land a full helicopter. You just basically mm-hmm. need enough space for the helicopter to either get below a tree canopy or if the trees are, not you know, or the trees need to be uh, less than, you know, it de- depends on the length of, of the hoist. Um, but yeah, as long as there's enough room for them to drop a basket down, then then you're good. So, yeah. Anyway, so as for the hospitals in the area, there are several options, but uh, there are several options. But as you might imagine, they are all far away. Uh, the nearest level three trauma would be a 70 minute drive uh, in ideal conditions. You want level mm. two? Yeah, it's going to be about two and a half hours for a drive. Oof. So uh there is the closest hospital, technically 45 minutes away, but that is what it, that'd be a level four trauma center. And we'll talk about at the end of this episode why that would not be ideal for this patient. Yeah. So, all right. The actual call. So our call starts out at one of the most important events at any rural fire department. The event that brings in the dollars that these agencies need to keep serving the communities that they serve. The event that absolutely must go perfectly. Spence, you know exactly what I'm talking about.
1: So, of course. It's the uh, calendar. Firefighter calendar. <laughs> 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 nice.
0: I know what you're referencing now. First of all, like, what is it? What i down.
1: What <laughs> i <That's> all down. <laughs> 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 all right. Fair
0: that wasn't what i was going with but you know what that's almost better but not better than the fucking
1: catalina (laughs) wine mixer oh yeah i've heard i've never heard of the catalina wine mixer please tell me gotcha tell me more so
0: that that is uh (laughs) the catalina wine mixer uh the catalina wine mixer or sometimes known by its other name as the fill the boot drive uh fill the boot by the way yeah that's basically where uh Firefighters collect donations from their local community to keep buying the things that they need. So, uh, anyway at this event there are several notable characters of course we have uh, Nancy and we've got Robert but we also have, but we also have uh, one additional EMT intermediate that we're going to call Dale and an additional EMT that we shall call Brennan and once again I need to point out that the character of the real people in the story is not reflected in my choices of personas for them these are actually all good people in real life but my chosen theme is a movie that's full of deplorable idiots so uh, yeah, yeah. No, 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 but they did just become
1: best friends right
0: yeah. <laughs> oh absolutely they did karate in the basement anyway so uh, finally we have two additional emts and we're going to call them randy uh and
1: pam all right hold on are you saying pan or pam no 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 it's, it's pam like pam with an m oh there's a d on the end no there's no d it's it's just pam okay like with two m's no, no. there's the confusion that's no it's just just pam thank you for that by the way
0: Uh, There's also a troop of about 10 to 13 other responders present at the Catalina Wine Mixer, Uh, but this is the first and last time that they'll be a part of our story. So, bye guys. Anyway, so yeah. as our crew is going about the event, trying to sell as many helicopters as possible, I mean, trying to fill the boot. Uh, Robert Doback, chief of Prestige Worldwide uh, Fire and Rescue, <laughs> receives a phone call from a friend with an urgent message. Dobak's friend states that their friend may have been in an accident while biking. And of course, they were biking in a place that is deep uh, in difficult terrain with absolutely no cell service. So you might be asking, how did they call their friend? <clears throat> well, yeah. What they did have, however, was a carrier pigeon. I'm kidding. What they did have, however, was a GPS <laughs> with something called InReach. I'm not super familiar with this, but uh, both Nancy and uh, Chief Dobak were. Uh, But anyway, with this device, uh, in addition to being like a standard GPS unit, which is great for using out in the wilderness, uh, it can send short text messages using the satellite signal, uh, which is separate from cellular signals. As long as you can see the sky, you can get a short message along with your location out. Uh, I'm not sure why his message goes to his friend and not to like a 911 center, but regardless, Mr. Dobak now has a general location of a stranded bicyclist who may be injured along with the call, Mr. Doback Dobak also receives satellite pictures of the area uh, from Google Earth, I believe, uh, that the patient may be located in. So Chief Dobak advises uh, the caller to call 911 to generate the response while he then calls the comm center, uh, which is it's a PSAP. So that is where the 911 call is going. So gotcha. Yeah. So he is uh, he advises the comm center that they're going to be sending an
1: ambulance, a command unit and the UTV. Ultra high definition TV so that they can better assess the <laughs> pictures. That's a exactly. uh, Google Earth sent. That's exactly, you know,
0: if it's going to be prolonged extrication, you can play some video games, do whatever you want to do. Uh, Yeah, dude. 4K TV. Hell yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, utility task vehicle. Uh, So their uh, specific utility task vehicle is a six wheeled Gator, which if you aren't familiar, just think about like if an ATV and like an El Camino had a baby and then that baby grew up and had another baby with a golf cart. And that's basically, yeah. Yeah. What you have is a two seater (laughs) golf cart with all train tires and a little flatbed. So it's perfect to move rescuers and like a patient around. So they have that thing. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah. So in the ambulance, we have Nancy and Dale, which are our two EMT intermediates in the command unit. We have chief Dobak, Brennan, Randy, and Pam. The command unit is also towing the UTV. Mm. So before we get much farther into the story, I'm going to describe the terrain of the area they are going to, or at least what they know prior to getting there. They can see that the patient is in a wooded area with difficult terrain. The paths are narrow and access is going to be very difficult. They can see from the GPS coordinates that there are two likely access routes to the patient. So Spencer, I think it's pretty plain to see that uh, at this point, this is going to be a fairly involved call so let's say you're Chief Doback in this case so you are you are the chief uh, yeah what are you thinking at this point in time in route to the call so by the way your ETA to the scene is going to be about you know roughly 20-30 to 30 minutes um, to even get to the area and so it could be much longer until you actually find your patient so basically you have 20-30 to 30 minutes to get to the spot where you can start looking for the patient
1: All right, yeah. Uh, Well, my first thought is how lucky my friend is that he is friends with me, who can you know activate this you know rescue squad with little to no trouble. That is, uh, (laughs) it's mm, all about you. That's that is a huge benefit to being my friend. Just (laughs) saying. uh, (laughs) Yeah, in this fantasy
0: realm, there are benefits to being (laughs) Spencer's friend. In real life. (laughs)
1: that's mostly just going to start a business and another
0: obligation when you get off work
1: (laughs) that's that's it yeah um no so i think you know one of the things that uh we need to consider is um you know like getting access to the patient um the equipment that we'll need to bring the kind of resources that we'll need to bring Mm -hmm. and then of course um how we're going to get the patient out and ultimately to the hospital. Um, you know, so I don't know, we don't really know the terrain in which this person's in Well, it's, uh, it,
0: it appears that the, the terrain is, um, let's see, ah, shitty, I believe is the technical term. Yeah, okay. Yes.
1: All right. A shitty Gulch. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just, you know what? Gulch is such a weird word and Isn't I'm it? so glad I'm getting to use it. Gulch. 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 Nice. Yeah. Um, So, you know, like, uh, this might be one of those things where, uh, hey, it's going to take us four hours to get this guy out of there. What if we had a hoist that could get the patient out? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know the cape, like the medical capabilities of the like National Guard versus like the flight crew um, in terms of what they carry. So that might be a consideration too to have like the you know uh, national guard fly somebody to an another lz where um you know a flight crew could then take the patient from there to one of the hospitals um yeah this is this is a heavy resource thing and i am woefully unprepared uh as spencer to manage something along these lines this would be one where uh I would want somebody who has a lot more experience in this area. Like I, this is, this is where if you're the chief of, uh of the fire department of prestige uh, fire, you yeah, have prestige an advantage worldwide fire. Oh, prestige, prestige yeah. worldwide. Uh, you play my drums.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you teabag my drums.
1: <laughs> um, so I mean, the, yeah, it, like, depending on what services are available, there is the possibility that you could be hiking in to a very injured patient and then trying to hike them out. Um, you could be with this patient a very long time. Um, there's, you know, presumably this is a trauma call, uh, given the, you know, activity. Um, Mm -hmm. so you, we're going to want to be able to keep the patient warm, uh, yeah like <laughs> yeah. it's so a, couple, this is a long journey yeah. yeah
0: so and a couple other things too is uh, you know um, kind of as you mentioned is you also need to be very aware of your own safety when going into these types of incidents you know you're talking about uh, an area and I should also mention by the way it's uh <laughs> We're just going to say, I'm just going to tell you there's, there's potentially snow on the ground as well where they're going. Mm. Uh, and so you really have a lot of concerns, uh, for your own crew that need to be taken into account on calls like this.
1: I think another thing that you would need to consider for, you know, like if you're going to be with a patient an extended amount of time would be uh, items that could potentially run out, uh, yeah. quick. Yeah. You know, that's a good for point. instance, like if you need oxygen, if this patient needs oxygen because they've, you know, like, completely messed up their chest and, you know, like Mm -hmm. need oxygen support, uh, a D tank will not last a four hour hike. You might need a lot of pain medication to help make this patient as comfortable as possible. I mean, yeah, you could be setting up like a pain medication drip. Like these are all things that, you know, like if you're pre-gaming, right, you're, you're going to think about, you know, how, Hey, how are we going to keep this patient warm for four hours? Because a warm blanket goes, gets cold pretty quick, especially if you're in snow. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I mean, there might be something where it's like, yeah, we don't have enough to, you know, we have what we have and Mm -hmm. we are resource limited. And I guess, you know, like. Now,
0: one thing I will point out is there is snow (laughs) on the ground, but there, but I mean, it's not like. we're we're not grabbing our toboggan to get to the patient anytime. This is not the Iditarod. How about that? So like there's uh, uh, yeah, there's not. Well, uh, now I'm
1: disappointed because I was hoping that Iditarod dogs would uh, make an
0: appearance
1: (laughs) and we'd have like a uh, iron will kind of situation going.
0: That's how, (laughs) yes. Instead of the helicopter, they call for a sled team. Yeah, so, all right, so cool. So as our crew continues to head up to the patient, uh, they start heading down a road and about three miles into the road, they see a road sign. Uh, now I don't, I don't remember exactly what they told me that the road sign says, but it just essentially says "get wrecked." Like don't, yeah. don't come down this road. <laughs> I know it's technically there. That's, uh, that, seriously though, cut your losses, make better choices. Free- <laughs>
1: around three miles in is kind of a poor like it's like huh what's this road yeah well let's drive down it and then three miles in it's like hey man this is the road and you shouldn't be here that yeah. is a late that is poor roadside placement he, he, right
0: that's a good point that should be kind of at the start you'd think uh, but the problem is though they can't right they have to press on yeah. and eventually uh they got to come to a decision point between their two access paths uh so uh, they've also been advised, by the way, that the forestry uh, department they asked for before is about 10 minutes behind them, and they will be there. Uh, so. Oh, okay. Uh, At the start of the two paths, they decide to pick path A. Nancy Huff, Robert Doback, Brennan, Randy, and Pam uh, load in survival kits and a BLS bag that Nancy packs uh, with some ALS extras like IV starts and fluid. Uh, Dale, uh, who is the other uh, intermediate, uh, ends up staying behind at the command unit uh, while our troop heads out.
1: Gotcha. Is there a TV in their uh, (laughs) setup and is it playing cops?
0: It should. Well, you can tell. I mean, are they sweaty? Like, is that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, No real question though. um, Do you know a couple of them for you Mm -hmm. here? Do you know why they chose a over B or is that just sort of like, Knowledge uh, of their own, you know, or do they flip a coin?
0: Um, I, I don't know exactly why they chose uh, A over B. Um, okay. I don't think it was a coin flip. I think just the way they were looking is that A <clears throat> seemed to have more access, and they're like, well, let's try this one first. But I, okay. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's fair. Um, what are in their BLS kits? Uh, so the BLS kit has uh, just like bandages, tourniquets, it's got vital sign equipment, so blood pressure cuffs, stethoscope. Mm. Uh, it does have a glucometer in it. Why? Um, <laughs> well for some people it's not uh it's also about, uh it, i do find it funny uh, that they that they mentioned that it has MSS bags which usually like i mean a lot of bls kids i know have emesis bags but almost when people tell us about their kids, they don't mention that and so i yeah. feel that that may be more foreshadowing we'll see anyway okay, okay. Uh, and it also contains a, an adjustable c collar uh, gotcha. they also have a vac mattress with them uh which if you're not familiar it's kind of like a vacuum seal bag that you'd use for like luggage um but like you put people in it and uh so what you do is you wrap it around the patient and then you use a pump to remove air and that causes it to become like a giant like rigid splint like a form fitting like hard taco shell i guess you could say okay and so gotcha. uh
1: it, yeah is this is this one of those like very large ones that could take the place of a backboard 100%. for instance yep. or is- That's exactly what it
0: is. So cool. Yeah. Cause, cause you're right. They do make smaller ones that you'd use for like splinting arms and legs and that kind of stuff. But no, this one is, this one would is what they're using in place of like a, a backboard. Um, and by the way, there are some studies out on these things. Um, I will personally say the studies are too small to really be definitive, but they are interesting in that, uh, these have been shown, uh, in limited studies, to cause uh, less soft tissue injury than a rigid spine board. Because uh, the problem with rigid spine boards, we have an episode where we talked about this, is that, believe it or not, um, your back is not flat. And so what happens when we put people on rigid spine boards is that they get a lot of the pressure of their is not evenly distributed throughout the spine board. And it can actually cause soft tissue damage from laying on the spine board for too long. So, yeah, these cause apparently right. less soft tissue damage. So, so, yay. Uh, so anyway, uh, so they begin trucking down this long, long trail at about 150 yards in, or it would be about halfway through Connecticut. They come to a bridge that is <laughs> impassable, uh, by the ETV. uh, chief Doback makes the, uh, makes the call to send Pam and Randy to EMTs back up to the command vehicle to grab an additional BLS kit and attempt path B Pam and Randy depart while Nancy, Robert and Brennan trudge on towards what they hope will be the patient during this trudge they end up encountering ankle deep snow uh they even have to cross over some shallow streams of water in other words it is fucking miserable uh but at this point they are committed and they push on for about another hour and a half or so uh finally after all the hiking uh and what ended up being about two hours from the initial phone call that he received at the catalina wine mixer uh they make patient contact Oh, so, wow. Yay, we found the patient. Uh So, yeah, it was a long hike in. Uh, they find the patient on a downhill section of the trail accompanied by his dog and his girlfriend. The patient is awake, lying on an inflatable camping pad uh, and covered with a sleeping bag. The patient is a 32-year-old male. EMT Brennan holds manual stabilization of the patient's C-spine while the patient and his girlfriend tell their story of woe. So, while riding down the hill, the patient's front tire rapidly deflates. Uh, unsure if this is like a... uh of exactly what happened, because, like, I guess the tire was still intact, so it wasn't like it blew, Hmm. but for whatever reason, the air pressure, uh, you know, that was in it, uh, was not suddenly, and this caused the patient to lurch forward and get thrown over the handlebars, landing on his neck. So... Yeah, and when I say he landed on his neck, that is exactly what I mean. Not that like he landed on his head, uh, but his neck made contact with the ground first. So the patient then felt like a hard pop, which was immediately followed by 10 out of 10 pain. And then the rest of his body comes to the rest by slamming into a tree stump. So, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I, I think the term come to rest is a little liberal on uh, on that right there. <laughs> uh, you know, ouch. it's a rest <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So apparently after that <laughs> happened, he's like, well, time to try and stand up. Uh, he tried to stand up. Uh, But he felt really nauseous. So his girlfriend, who, by the way, happens to be a wilderness first responder, uh, lays him down, uh, but notes that when laying him flat on his back, he's not comfortable at all, tons of pain, and he gets really, really nauseous. Uh, But the patient was able to find some level of increased comfort by laying on his right side. So when asked... Uh, the patient states that his pain is currently an 8 out of 10 and starts at about C7 and moves down to between his shoulder blade. Our patient, by the way, shall be called Derek. After learning about the pain between his shoulder blades, Brennan, who is holding C-spine, says, Hey, Derek, you know what's really good for shoulder blade pain? <laughs> and by the way, that the reference nice. is the sole reason I call the patient Derek. <laughs> so, anyway. All right. All nice. right. Yeah. So, Spencer, <laughs> um, given this PHI, uh, what are your thoughts and concerns at this point and what would you do next?
1: Um, real quick, uh, was the patient wearing a helmet or any protective gear? Uh, yes. So the uh, patient's actually an experienced rider, uh, was
0: wearing a, a experienced like mountain biker, was wearing and was okay. wearing a helmet. Uh, but the helmet has since been removed.
1: Gotcha. All right. Um, yeah, this is kind of a tricky one. Uh, I, I can see a lot of ways that this patient could be, you know, pretty significantly injured. Um, you know, like you think about getting thrown over your handlebars. Uh, he lands on his neck instead of his head, which I guess is sort of good in a way in that, like, if he landed directly onto his head, that mm-hmm. is a lot of compression that gets thrust down your spine. Whereas if you yep. land more on your neck... It's, I I mean, I guess it's not great either, but (laughs) it's potentially mildly better. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it's definitely, Uh, it's it's, yeah. Um, Yeah. You're still putting a lot of, like, I I would imagine that he has, like, you would have to assume he has cervical uh, spine fractures. Oh, Um, yeah. Uh, do we know, was he able to stand up? Is he able to move his limbs? So, um, yeah. So
0: he initially stood up after, uh, right after the, uh, the accident, okay. but he got really nauseous and had to like, and so his girlfriend's like, Hey, lay down on this mattress.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So he was able to, like you said, tried to stand up. And I just imagine a guy like, Oh, flopping gotcha, his arms, gotcha. like, no, no, he, yeah. I, I believe he actually, <laughs> I believe
0: he actually got up, uh, and was, okay. and was able to move all of his extremities. Uh, okay. just, yeah, he got nauseous and his girlfriend's like, Hey, mm, let's not. So,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would still be considerate of, uh, C-spine precautions, even though he was able to stand up. Um, you know, uh, there is an idea that, you know, just because there isn't, um, you know, neurogenic shock, uh, shock happening now, um, C7 is still, high enough for that to be a factor Mm -hmm. and that might be something that develops um even in the short term uh just because of localized swelling because it turns out your body doesn't like it when you break bones
0: yeah Um, i wouldn't know i've
1: never broken a bone um so (laughs) but i've i've seen other people break bones and their body doesn't seem to like it so uh uh, so that could be a, something that causes compression on the spinal cord later. Um, and so th- I, I would be very, very careful with my handling of this patient. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the factors of him, uh, you know, uh, having his uh, fall arrested by a tree stump, um, I, uh, tree stumps aren't <laughs> soft. <laughs> you know,
0: I've noticed that like when people, when stunt performers, there's a safety like, net, not
1: a safety tree stump.
0: I've noticed that.
1: <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't rate mattresses and uh, you know, <laughs> like, oh, this is three tree stumps. <laughs> it's like a horsepower rating. Oh man. <laughs> so uh there could be a lot of internal injury, there could be internal bleeding, there could be other fractures that he doesn't he, he might not even be aware of because um you know, like the neck pain, back pain. Sure, distracting injuries. Significantly distracting. Yeah. Um so, yeah, like, this is one of those where a, a real full assessment is warranted. Gotcha. I would say the other part, too, is y- you might have a patent airway now, but if he's nauseated, if there's any, like, potential for a head injury, you know, like, let's examine the helmet, um, see if there's, you know, a d- damage to it, uh, you know, like, maybe he did hit his head and he's just not aware of it because, you know, his neck was the thing that sure. cried wolf first. Uh, or cried out in pain. Um, <laughs> y- there could be potential for airway loss, and uh, and then if you have somebody who's nauseated and with the potential to lose airway, that might mandate um, mm-hmm. some aggressive airway action. So, yeah, um, pain control would be high on my list after sure. you know making sure we're not bleeding everywhere, that we're you know not anticipating <laughs> going into neurogenic You know, controlling for the ABCs, um, mm-hmm. I, pain control. And how, how we're going to get him out of there are uh, big deals, especially if he's very nauseated laying prone or supine. Yeah. Um, that, that adds an extra layer of, uh, huh. Yeah. <laughs> huh. No, you bring up a lot of good points, I think, especially
0: when you're talking about, yeah, like egress and the patient having to lay on their back and like airway control because, Like we got to get this guy out. Right. And uh, one option is to carry the guy out. But, you know, carrying somebody out and then also trying to keep this position of comfort that the guy has, you just got to face it. Sometimes that's not going to happen. And Mm -hmm. now you got to carry a guy where all the hands around them are going to be carrying him, not managing the guy's airway, which is also going to be difficult to do. And he may start deciding to vomit all of a sudden through all of this. So, yeah, there's a lot. uh, There's a lot of issues. And also, I love the fact that you brought up, like, distracting injuries. Uh, one of the things that, that can happen on these scenes, and you also kind of brought up, like, that thought of, like, oh, like, well, there's the patient, kind of, the patient, I always hate hearing this, I know you've heard it, too, it's like, oh, well, they self-extricated, so we're not going to put any C-spine precautions on them. Why? <laughs> <laughs> why would you not and it's weird because like when I say it like this in this settings it sounds stupid and anyone having this conversation would be like why it makes no sense but it happens all the time you'll see patients up and walking around like I want to go to the hospital I have some neck pain they're like yeah we didn't put him in a C collar he self extricated and it's like okay that doesn't change anything. What we have to remember is that that pain uh, may be coming from a fracture that hasn't shifted uh, to cause a spinal cord injury. Because I I think people often conflate the spinal cord and the spinal column, you know, the vertebrae itself Mm -hmm. uh, as one thing. And it's not the vertebrae are around the cord. So you can have a broken vertebrae. That hasn't sliced its way to the cord yet, or the swelling hasn't gotten bad enough, like you mentioned, to cause a cord injury yet. Um, yeah. But you really need to keep it from moving around. So just because someone was able to move once doesn't mean they're going to be able
1: to keep doing it. So, yeah. It, yeah. Good. Good call on on all that. Uh, so. Good. I, w- I will say you know like C collars have come into question over the recent years, but you know I, so follow your mm-hmm. local protocols. Um, soft collars so far seem to be on the rise, and yeah, uh, I, I you know again protocol dependent. Yeah. Uh, soft collar might be a, a appropriate choice here if too. you yeah
0: if you carry one. And and I yeah. think yeah I, th- I think a lot of what it kind of comes down to is the the rigid C spine collars that almost everybody carries. They're they they kind of address. Um, they don't do anything well. Um, so th- that's well. It, I mean I mean really they yeah. don't they don't fit well. They really don't. It is actually seldom. What I really want you to do is every time you see a rigid C spine collar, take a look at it. And tell me, is it perfectly fit on the patient? They almost never are. I'm not saying they're not fit adequately enough. They often are, but they don't fit well. And that's where soft collars have the advantage. Soft collars fit really easily. And if you notice, whenever you take someone to a trauma center, they usually have the multiple piece, mostly soft collar. It has like some rigid skeleton to it, but it's mm-hmm. the kind where it's in like three or four pieces and you assemble around the patient and it fits fine. Uh, it's yeah. more the comfortable. The collar. Yeah. But the thing is like, oh, well, a rigid C-spine collar actually holds the patient's uh, C-spine tighter. Not really, no, because it causes, it does not hold it enough to where the patient can't move against it. They can. And they yeah. do all the time. Patients constantly tug at that thing because it's uncomfortable. Patients move all the time. And I will tell you this. Remember, you're Goal is to keep the C spine in a neutral inline position. That's your goal. Your goal is not to place a C collar. We conflate the two often, right? We conflate the two and we often say like, "Oh, placing a C collar is keeping it in that position." Not if your patient constantly fights against it. So you so if you have a patient that is either well, I mean it's very true. Like so if you have yeah. a patient that will relax with just soft padding on either side of the head and maybe like a soft neck roll or something like or a soft neck roll. Don't roll the neck Uh, like a soft like uh, bed roll or blanket roll or something like that to kind of keep things in place. But they move less and they fight less that is a more stable c-spine than the person who is either intoxicated or too young or just can't handle the discomfort of the c-spine collar who's sitting there trying to pull it off constantly turning their head to look at you to ask can i take the collar off can you take this off yeah i'm thirsty you know like that constantly that kind of shit Mm -hmm. um yeah so a calm patient who doesn't move has a more stable c-spine than someone who is in a rigid splint and complaining about the pain that is those are my personal opinions please do what your local protocol says but things to consider all right that said a rigid c-collar is placed in the patient uh and let's go to the head to toe exam but, but the patient it, it fits the patient fine i guess it's one of the rare times <laughs> that it's actually it's actually the kind of patient they're designed for a nice. young a, a young Perfect. healthy person so anyway yeah. <clears throat> So, ear, nose, throat, that is clear. The airway is patent, and the patient is able to speak in full sentences. There is no jugular vein distension or tracheal deviation that is noted, uh, which those are both signs for potential uh, pneumothorax. Uh, After removing the patient's uh, shirt, there's nothing remarkable that's noted on the patient's torso. They log roll the patient uh, and only note tenderness to palpation along the lower cervical and upper thoracic spine. There are no step-offs or deformities that were noted along the spine. Extremities were cold, um, but just because, again, there's... on the ground, but otherwise, there's yeah. no significant findings that were present on the extremities. The patient is then law rolled onto the vac mat that they have. So at this point, Nancy gets to work on establishing IV access and nails it, snagging bilaterally 18 gauge IVs and then administering four milligrams of Zofran. Uh Brennan nice. grabbed a yeah, I thought so too. Uh Brennan grabbed a set of vitals and uh Chief Robert Doback starts planning for egress, uh, which is gonna be exciting. Uh so the vital signs are as follows: Heart rate 84, respiratory rate. Um, our call givers didn't remember exactly what the respiratory rate was, but it was unremarkable. Just it was normal. Okay. Uh the Blood pressure is 120 over 64. They can't get an Sao2 reading because the patient's fingers are cold, and they just have like one of the finger probe monitors, so they can't even really see if the pleth waves working. Um, So that's what they have right there. So uh, Spence, given these vitals and all
1: that stuff, uh, what do you think of the interventions they have so far? Anything else you would add or do different? This sounds like a fairly unremarkable assessment. Um, You know, uh, I would be curious about neurological findings. Um, you know, if the patient feels they have any numbness, paresthesia, Oh, I am sorry. Um, I told you, the, the patient does not, the patient's nerves are intact in all four extremities. Okay. Perfect. Um, and then, uh, you know, because of course we don't know, uh, like pelvis stable, no pain, all of that. Yeah, um, uh, pelvis is yeah. stable.
0: Yeah. And, and sorry, yeah, I, I skipped the pelvis. I think I just skipped straight to extremities. Uh, but yeah, pelvis is stable with no, no, perfect. no notable findings.
1: Uh, well, you know, uh, at this point, uh, This seems like they've done, you know, the appropriate things. They've got C-spine precautions managed of his vitals. I don't see anything that needs immediate resuscitation. Mm -hmm. Um, if the patient's, you know, not showing any signs of cyanosis or difficulty breathing and lung sounds are clear, um, I would say then, you know, like you might be able to withhold oxygen and, con- you know, and and continue uh, because again, it's it's sort of a limited resource here. I, I I don't know what their egress time is. So, and this is um, something
0: we may have to talk about later. Um, yeah, they actually did not bring oxygen with them to the patient. Okay, and we'll we'll touch on that later because uh, as as <laughs> I'm sure many listeners are right now, like, oh, I bet that pissed Chris off. Uh, and in this case, it really didn't actually, it, uh, it wasn't that big of i have I've, I've got my reasoning behind it and we'll touch on okay. it later. Well, but, yeah, uh, I'm
1: curious. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Um, so can't, I guess the next thing would be, all right, they've got nausea under control. Which by, by the way, sorry, really,
0: really, I'm not saying that not bringing it was the right thing to do. I'm just saying it's not as immediately apparent that it was wrong either. And it's worth a discussion versus okay. usually I, I smack that one down pretty quick. Like why yeah. you have no reason. Oh, Cause but. it was left on their gurney. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: So yeah. anyway, um, so I guess my next question would be, all right, so they they've tried to treat the uh, nausea aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see if that's effective or not. Uh, but the other big piece for this patient is pain. Is yeah. pain management something that the intermediates have in their scope? Can they give? You know, I, I don't know what they have: fentanyl or morphine. Yeah. Or
0: so, cocaine. Do
1: they just give eight balls?
0: Uh, so, super, super fun story. Uh, yes, the intermediates can give narcotic pain medicine. Uh, however the oh. uh they require a sign off uh from their from this individual department from uh, prestige worldwide to be able to access said narcotic pain medicine and nancy being newly minted uh EMT intermediate uh, does not have uh such access uh now the EMT intermediate but, that's back up at the command rig may
1: oh, god damn it yeah that's that they was may. i was like but somebody does right they, they- <laughs>
0: yeah but uh yeah they're about an hour and a half away mm. so uh yeah there, there you go there's the answer. Okay. And this is actually something that nancy said while they were doing a call like as they got patient access they're like oh shit <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. It
1: just, so chris it, yeah question here um because my thought would be, well, there is a workaround possibly, which mm. is if they have the medication in like within their reach, and they just are prevented by procedural rule. Uh, is this something they could override with perhaps a call to or a contact with online medical control?
0: Um, that is a really good question. It is not within their reach um, with the patient being there. Okay, um, so. Um, but I don't know if it's something they could overwrite. Even if it was, I don't know if it's something they could overwrite with online medical control. So, but um, yeah, that that is interesting. And I believe it's not a clinical concern um, which is where online medical control would kind of have an authority. I believe this is more of a operational concern. So I think the authority to do so would come from, from interagency in which case the chief is right there. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh, just ask him, which well, maybe uh, it's yeah. just
1: not his good friend, you know, maybe right. it's that friend. He, he's like, ah, mm. God damn it. Bill. <laughs>
0: I don't know. That could be. So <laughs> All right. uh, uh anyway, so during the assessment, uh, and vital signs and interventions, uh, Chief Dobak, uh, the learned doctor that he is, has been communicating with the comm center about egress. It is determined that a helicopter with hoisting capability is going to be needed, but this presents a problem. So the Air National Guard can certainly hoist and one of the rotary companies can, as a reminder. But the rotary company that can do it is currently on another scene and is not available, of course. So Dobeck mm-hmm. tells the comm center, hey, activate the Air National Guard and uh, relays the LZ location. The LZ location, by the way, ends up being a nearby stream bed where the helicopter should be able to get low enough to drop a basket and hoist the patient. And by nearby, by the way, I mean that's going to be about another 25 minutes. Once you consider the fact that they have to pack up the patient, get their equipment ready and prepare to move, and that they're going to be moving much slower, moving a patient with them. Uh, they expect yeah. that the helicopter should be in the area in about 45, so they have the time. Uh, unfortunately though, for this move, the patient has to be carried and will be supine for the majority of the track. Uh, there just, there isn't much of a way around this and it would be very difficult to carry the patient on their right side. And one thing that I'd point out, most of these carriers and even, even hard backboards, you know, the handles are built to where when you carry it, the patient will then be supine if everyone's even. Yeah. And so to try and like, you know, I put all the short people on the right side so he can (laughs) lean to, you know, like that's not going to be necessarily safe and that's going to end, you know, the elevation is going to change depending on the rough terrain, you know, people on the right side might be suddenly standing higher than people on the left, you know, so they're just, I mean, they make their best attempt to keep the patient comfortable, but they're just, there isn't a lot that they can do uh, while they start moving the patient. Uh, so while the crew awaits for the uh, comforting thwumpa thwumpa sounds of an approaching helicopter, they enjoy a game of fetch. Oh, by the way, they they make it to the LZ successfully with no incidents. Oh, that's... So, <laughs> and, yeah, I should point that out there. Uh, and the other thing, too, is I would note that... um also, it's much better to carry the patient safely and securely, even if it does increase pain, than to drop the patient, because I can guarantee that's the one position of comfort that they won't have, is whatever position they land on when you drop them. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it sucks, but hey, at least you're everyone has a secure hold. All right, so they're waiting for the thwampa thwampa and uh, they enjoy a game of fetch with the dog, and they crack jokes with the patient. Uh, they did put the patient on that right-sided uh, position, which significantly helped uh, with uh, the patient's pain. They monitor vital right. signs uh, as they do this um, at multiple intervals and there are no significant changes noted, which, by the way, I want to commend them for doing that because uh, it can get easy to get complacent on patients who appear uh, stable. Uh, and we'll talk and when about... when there's a dog to play fetch with. Uh, oh, 100%. Now, give, don't get me wrong. They didn't stop playing with the dog. They just made sure to assign somebody to the dog and assign somebody to vital signs as well. So, uh, <laughs> hey, anyway, newbie. <laughs> <laughs> Go get the vital Kyle, signs. Get over there, Kyle. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to point out is the patient... Like, even though the patient was still clearly in pain, they were an absolute trooper and they were managing the pain really well and still making jokes. So, you know, go patient. Yeah. So, uh, as the time passes, it becomes apparent to Chief Robert uh, that something is amiss. The helicopter appears to have missed its arrival window. So, Doback contacts the command center once more to check on the status of the Air National Guard and discovers the following useful information. They're not coming. They never left it. What? Yeah. <laughs> So somewhere along uh, the line of communication, and, and here's the thing, like we're about 50 minutes to an hour now after they said, hey, send the Air National Guard that we've been with this patient Um, somewhere along the line of communication. The Air National Guard, they were placed on standby and told there's a potential call, but they were never told to lift. Oh. Yeah, they weren't told to activate. <sighs> Um, for oh for whatever reason, uh, focus was instead placed on that one rotor ring agency that was currently occupied at another scene, and waiting to get them to clear so that they could then come on the call. And I, I don't know why that got hung. Uh, that got hung up. The information wasn't relayed to me. Um, but yeah, so. The international right. guard never came, so Chief Doback now contacts the international guard directly and discovers that they were made aware of the potential call but told to stand by. So they did. Doback is advised that it would take them thirty minutes to launch, forty-five minutes to reach the scene. Uh, so you're looking at seventy-five minutes there. And uh, yeah. Doback says, "Well, let's uh, start heading this way." And so then Doback says, "Hey, and also, you know, notify me when the uh, when the aircraft launches." So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyways <laughs> yeah. yeah so the crew is uh now advised of the additional delay and unfortunately this uh, still remains the best and really only option uh the waiting and fetch game continues 30 minutes goes by no contact 37 minutes 42 minutes and finally at the 45 minute they receive where the ang is inbound but still the wait has been too long. For Brennan, the EMT, who yells that this stream is a prison on planet bullshit in the galaxy of suddenly the sounds of a chopper can be heard overhead. And the crew knows that this too long of a call is finally coming to a close. The Air National Guard hoists down a pararescue specialist as the helicopter does an additional recon loop, during which time a handoff is given to the PJ. The helicopter returns and lowers a basket while the PJ and our ground crew assist in loading. The patient is hoisted up and takes a 45-minute flight uh, to the level 2 trauma center. So, Here's the follow-up. The patient was found to have a fractured uh, T2 through T6. So T2, T3, T4, T5, T6. Uh, Requiring full halo traction as well as some internal surgical stabilization as well. The crew did get to meet their patient afterwards, which is awesome. Uh, And he ultimately survived the incident with no neurological deficits uh, after about a three to four four day stay in the hospital.
1: So there you go. All right. Uh, Well, uh, let me try and... uh summarize this call uh there was a lot to it all right so well at the uh catalina wine mixer uh fill the boot uh robert dobak dubak Do- dr dobak dr dobak A learned doctor i mean fire chief uh receives uh, word <laughs> that, uh, a friend of a friend who they may or may not like is possibly in trouble in some backwood road area. Um, Dobek assembles a team and heads out in an ambulance and command vehicle with uh, their ultra high definition TV uh, <laughs> with cops going on in tow. Bad
0: boys, bad uh, boys.
1: <laughs> After going down a road uh, with a questionable sign way too far into it <laughs> that says like, hey, uh, we're going to beat you with bars of soap in a pillowcase uh, if you continue. Uh, they have no choice but to continue down and they arrive in a fork in a road do they go left or right we don't know they took path a so uh <laughs> could be either all right uh so uh they use their uh <laughs> their utv for a whopping 1 half connecticut before they come to in a- <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you for joining me on this uh, roasting yeah, 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 yeah. of small states which by the way we do love it's all it's all in jest we we
1: love you guys we really do oh that's a Texas ten four right there. All right, uh, <laughs> uh, we did get a little hate mail from Texas. Uh, that was funny.
0: Oh, did we really?
1: We well, on one of our uh, re- Spotify does reviews, and someone spotted, <laughs> "Consider this hate mail from Texas," which noted, <laughs> <laughs> "That's awesome." Well, what kind of yeah. st- what kind of review did they leave? Uh, I mean, it just it was like, "Hey, what'd you think of the ep- episode?" And oh God, gotcha. that was that's what it said. Yep. Nice. All right. So, uh, yeah, they use that and then they come to an impassable bridge. Uh, So they send two EMTs back to try the other direction. Well, Nancy, uh, an EMT intermediate, Chief Dobek, and Brennan trudge another hour and a half and find the patient. Which, by the way, for all Uh, I know,
0: the two EMTs that went back, they never were found or heard from again. For all I know, they're still out there. Yeah, They they died by a grizzly bear.
1: Yeah, exactly. Could happen. Uh, mm, another thing. To add to the pregame bear <laughs> <Their go>. encounters. <laughs> All right. Uh, so they find the patient, uh, and his girlfriend, and more importantly, the patient's goodest boy dog, <laughs> nice. uh, or goodest girl dog. Who knows? Uh, on a downhill section of that trail, uh, with the patient on a camping mattress and uh covered in a sleeping bag. Correct. Yep. Yep. All right. Um, cool. So the patient has nausea and neck pain starting at around C7 that radiates to, uh, between their shoulder blades. Uh, they have pain and they're in a lot of pain and they have significant nausea, but it's better when he's able to lay on his right side. Um, so, uh, they assess the patient, treat him, uh, start a couple IV lines, uh, administer some Zofran and then, uh, uncomfortably move the patient to a nearby stream bed, it nearby being relative. <laughs> yeah, very true. I'm sure for yeah. the patient it was like, ah, oh, every step is excruciating oh, hell. God. But that's like yeah. six Rhode Islands away from here.
0: <laughs> Two
1: miles. Basically. <laughs> Dude, nice. Um and then everyone waits for the helicopter that's coming. Um and and waits. And waits. Yeah. Um, and then they figure out like, oh, they're not like, oh, you actually wanted us. No, oh, we're on standby. Yeah. And it's going to take us a very long time to actually not be on standby and then to like lift and get to you guys. Um, oof. but, uh, that gets fixed. And, uh, eventually the helicopter comes and takes this patient to a level two trauma center. And, uh, the patient, uh, lived to ride their bike again, presumably. Well, I don't know if they're riding their bike again, but you know, technically no neurological yeah, that, deficits. I uh, mean they yeah. could. They they left with the ability to ride their bike again if they so choose. Very true.
0: And uh and they only ended up with you know fractures in T4, T3, T or I'm sorry, T two, T three, T four, T five, T six. Counting's hard. I'm just yeah. a paramount. <laughs> when I get my flight nurse, I'll be able to count past five. So you
1: I'll be able to count <laughs> all the way to ten. All right. Um, so, yeah. So, what are we uh, – You, uh I am very interested in the trauma level discussion that you teased earlier. Yeah, because I think uh,
0: – yeah, I think we talk about this time and time again, and it always gets brought up. It's like, what is the difference between them? And so, I think we'll talk – we'll definitely talk about that. And I think earlier I talked about oxygen, and I think we need to talk about – Preparing for prolonged patient contact and what are some things you need to consider um, on the way in. Uh, yeah. We probably need to also touch on, uh, you know, what were there any system issues, you know, kind of our, our typical stuff, system issues, pregame, that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll mention that. But also, I kind of want to cover and not kind of want to cover. I'm definitely going to cover because it's my episode. Damn it. Um, <laughs> specifically <laughs> nice. neurogenic shock and why this was such a concern. Uh, For this patient So Spence You want to go Should we go right Into neurogenic shock Or do you want to talk about the? Hey tell you what Let's get the trauma levels Out of the way That's a quick one Yeah let's Alright. So you guys have probably all heard of trauma levels one, two, three, and four. That's what I have heard. Turns out there's actually a trauma level five, which I did not know. Uh, and generally the way this is, is that the trauma level one would be the most capable trauma facility and the trauma level five would be the least capable trauma, uh, facility. Uh, and these are trauma ratings that the American Trauma Society, um, I guess you could say, uh, in and assigns, uh, to people. Mm. So let's kind of start with, let's start with, uh, I'm going to start with a level five, just because it's on the list. And, uh, this is how it's summarized on the, uh, on the American Trauma Society's uh, website, and this is this. Uh, the Level 5 Trauma Center provides initial evaluation, stabilization, and diagnostic capabilities and prepares patients for transfers to higher levels of care. What they have to have, the elements they have to have, they have to have basic emergency department facilities to implement um, advanced trauma life support protocols available trauma nurses and physicians available upon patient arrival so you have to have uh, trauma nurses and trauma physicians uh, with the ATLS certification available upon arrival so right. can so these can't be called in um, after hours activation uh, protocols of, of the facility uh, if the facility is not open 24 hours a day so this so these are really like, We're really talking probably super rural areas where, yeah, you you may have an emergency room that is not 24 seven that actually does exist, but they need to have an activation protocol should the facility be needed. In the after hours, uh, gotcha. may provide surgery and critical care services if it's available, but it's not required. Um, that is that is a may, uh, and they have developed transfer agreements uh, for patients requiring more comprehensive care at the level one through three trauma centers. Um, okay. And the reason is, you and I have talked about this before, is that getting the process of getting someone transferred with all the red tape and stuff to get through can cost patients hours. It very literally can, and so having yep. pre-existing agreements with local facilities can expedite those transfers. And these agreements can, they can revolve um, around everything from, you know, an expedited or electronic paperwork process uh, to specific beds or areas of the hospitals that are kept open and available for such transfers, um, if that's a possibility. So those are the kind of agreements we're talking about to expedite that process. A level four, uh, a level four trauma center uh, will demonstrate an ability to provide advanced trauma life support prior to the transfer of patients to a higher level trauma center. Uh, and it provides also evaluation, stabilization and diagnostic capabilities for the injured patients. The elements that they must have, uh, in addition to um, to what the level five has, they still have to have the basic emergency department facilities to implement the advanced trauma life support protocols. And they also have to have a 24 hour laboratory to run labs. Uh, and they have to have the same available trauma nurses and physicians uh, available upon the patient arrival. Uh, they may also provide surgery and, and critical care services if available. Uh, they have to also have the same developed transfer agreements to transfer somebody out to level one or two trauma center, uh, not necessarily, but not a level three. So level four is yeah must have agreements for level one and level two. They won't transfer to a level three. Incorporates a comprehensive quality assessment program uh, and is involved with prevention efforts and must have an active outreach program for its referring communities. So those are some of the main differences. So level three. So now we're starting to get into the hospitals that will admit trauma patients, okay? The big thing, the big difference when, when, when it comes to like level five and level four is these hospitals will not admit trauma you know patients who meet the trauma criteria they must transfer out level threes can actually admit but they still also will transfer out as well so uh, they have the same 24 hour immediate coverage by emergency medical physicians uh, and the prompt availability of general surgeons as well now you know it doesn't say immediate but it says prompt availability of general surgeons and anesthesiologists so these may have to be called in but they are available 24 hours uh, so when, when it comes to surgery, so they, uh, they can incorporate a comprehensive quality assessment program, just like the level five or level four rather. Uh, and they also have, they're going to have the same like transfer agreements with level ones and level twos, uh, and they can provide backup care for rural and community hospitals. Uh, they offer continuing education of the nurses, of the nursing and allied health personnel uh, or the trauma team. Uh, and they are involved with prevention efforts as well. And active outreach All right. so level one and level two these are kind of your higher ends uh, so the level two has to have 24-hour immediate coverage by general surgeons as well as the the, the physicians as well as coverage by specialties of, of uh, orthopedic surgery neurosurgery anesthesiology emergency medicine radiology and critical care so that's a big difference right there the difference between level one or the level two and level three is that the level three has to have the availability of general surgeons and anesthesiologists but they and it's prompt availability but they don't have to be immediate. The level two must have immediate coverage by general surgeons. Uh, so the general surgeon basically has to be on site for level two. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So they have to also have uh, tertiary care needs such as cardiac surgery, uh, hemodialysis, which by the way, like this doesn't seem like, you know, when I think trauma, I usually don't think dialysis, but that's critical, especially in kidney injured patients, because I mean, yeah. you and I have talked about the kidneys. I mean, the kidneys, uh, you got the lungs, you got the heart, and then, then you got the kidneys. That's kind of how a lot of things go. The kidneys are, are a big deal uh, in your body uh, and microvascular okay. surgery. But these tertiary care needs can also be referred to a level one trauma center and they can transfer the patient out uh, for those. Uh, so. Okay. Um, Yep. And then like the other ones, they also provide trauma prevention and and continuing education uh, programs for staff. So the level one, this is the highest level you can get. So they have to have 24 hour in-house coverage by general surgeons, prompt availability of uh, care and specialties such as orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, anesthesiology, emergency medicine, radiology, internal medicine, plastic surgery, uh, oral (laughs) and maxillofacial, pediatric and critical care. So that's pretty expansive. And that means not, so for those specialties, that means not necessarily there. But they're rather quickly, but general surgeons gotcha. are there on, on scene, 24 hours, immediate coverage, uh, referral resources for the communities, nearby resources. They provide leadership in prevention, public education and surrounding communities. They provide continuing education of the trauma team members. They incorporate a comprehensive quality assessment program. They operate an organized teaching and research effort. To, uh, to direct new innovations in trauma care. That's a big change. That's a big thing right there. You are a yeah. teaching and researching hospital as well. And they have a program for substance abuse screening and patient intervention, and they meet the minimum requirements for annual volume of severely injured patients. So the level one is the only one that has a minimum volume. So if you don't see receive enough patients, then you don't get to keep the requirement. So, uh, yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. that is a uh, that is the differences in all the levels. So boom, now you know from the uh, and that that comes directly from the uh, the American Trauma Society. So shaboom aloom, is that. All right, so (laughs) let's talk about neurogenic shock. So this patient was not shocky, but it's definitely a consideration, especially when we're talking about spinal cord injuries. So it's really common when we talk about like high spinal injuries, we think about paralysis and respiratory dysfunction, right? And you should, you really should be concerned about these things. The higher up the spine you go, the more likely you are to see some kind of respiratory dysfunction. Um, Any injury above C7 has a potential to cause respiratory dysfunction. Okay. And I know this is obvious, but just remember, you know, when we say above C7, we mean C7, C6, C5, C4, not counting up like T1, T2, T3. You know, we're counting backwards from yeah. C7. So just, I I know that seems obvious, but it, if you're tired and listening to this, maybe it's not. So I want to talk about the hemodynamic concern with spinal injuries because it can often be difficult to identify in the field. So usually you're going to see neurogenic shock with trauma patients, right? But we often don't think of neurogenic shock in our poorly perfused
1: trauma patients. Yeah, because oftentimes we are concerned about bleeding because, you know, like, yeah, why else would their blood pressure be low? There's trauma and low blood pressure, you know, they They seem to stabilize that pelvis. (laughs) It's it's very hand in glove, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So we're going to talk about not just what, causes neurogenic shock why is it a thing but also uh how do the findings differ as well as the treatments uh if at all so there really isn't a universally defined blood pressure range uh before you would say a patient is in neurogenic shock but most studies define neurogenic shock as an sbp of less than 90 with a heart rate of less than 80 in a patient with an appropriate mechanism like a Suspected spinal injury, uh, and that mechanism when it comes to uh, hemodynamic instability, that can occur at any injury above T
1: six, so above the thoracic yeah, spine. Yeah, yeah, and this patient did have, if I remember correctly, T through T T two <laughs> through T six. Wow, yeah, that was a lot of alliteration. I didn't need. No, it um, was <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. We've been having trouble with that one. It's it's totally fine, but no, that's it. Exactly. And, and when I heard that, that's I'm like, oh, shit, uh, You know, th- this guy's a candidate for neurogenic shock, which is why and earlier I said this, them continually checking vital signs was absolutely critical for this patient. We're going to talk about a couple things here. So the most common cause of spinal cord injury is verte- uh, vertebral dislocation and, and fracture, which seems obvious. But there you go. Uh, and that's what we would call a primary spinal cord injury. Right. Something impacts the spinal cord. But. There's another really important thing to note is that signs and symptoms of neurogenic shock can actually occur from secondary injuries, such as edema around the spinal cord. And you touched on this earlier. And those symptoms can yeah. actually occur up to days later, uh, you know, but they can also occur over the, like the immediate, you know, hour or in this case, hours that they had with the patient. And that's essentially yeah. exactly what it is, is that you have edema and swelling that encroach on the spinal cord and eventually can actually cause ischemic injury to that spinal cord. And the problem with neurogenic shock is it makes itself worse so when you have ischemic injury due to being squeezed by edematous tissue hypotension will make that ischemic injury even worse as things go on and so neurogenic shock has this tendency to snowball so it can actually be um, uh, quite quite catastrophic to the patients so um why yeah why does it happen oh go ahead you're saying something.
1: Oh, I was going to say it's, it's sort of like a, you know, like if you have a bad stroke and then you get cerebral edema in the, you know, from the stroke, which prevents more blood from getting to the injured tissue yeah. that just expands the area of injury significantly. Um, and, you know, so the same principle here, if you make, if you make somebody hypotensive in an area that's already not getting blood, then you're essentially just expanding that zone of injury. Yes. Um,
0: yeah, and that is exa- and that's exactly what will happen here uh, as well. So, uh, but why? So many of the nerve roots that are located at T6 and above they contribute to the body's sympathetic tone, or in other words, the body's ability to activate fight or fight reflexes. Okay, that's going to be you know like. Uh, pupil dilation, heart rate increases, vasoconstriction, those kind of things. Uh, With those functions impaired, you may also wind up with an unopposed uh, vagal response. So Here's why that's bad, okay? So Mm. when you're talking about blood pressure, the three things that make up your blood pressure, uh, the the three things that contribute to blood pressure uh, are this. It's the pump. That's the heart. uh, How fast and how hard it squeezes. You have the size of the container, right? That's your vasculature. And then you have the fluid in it. If the vasculature becomes too big, but you don't increase the amount of fluid, the blood pressure is simply going to drop. That pressure is going to go lower. And the opposite is true. If you shrink that container and you keep the same amount of fluid, the pressure will then go up. Uh, If you drain the fluid out of it, the pressure is going to go down drastically because you – took the fluid out of the container, even if the container maintains the same size. Uh, The heart rate, if you lower the heart rate too much, then you're going to drop the pressure, even if the container and the fluid don't change. So the body manipulates these things to make up for uh, blood pressure and blood loss and those kind of things. So that is where we kind of come into some of the key differences um, between a hypovolemic patient. And a Neurogenic shock patient Oh and a vagal response By the way uh, Vagal is a Parasympathetic uh, Response That slows things down So uh, yeah. You know We have all heard about Like when someone's in SVT or a rapid uh, You know It's a rapid uh, Heart rate You can have them Blow on the end Of a stopper And that will Or blow on the end Of a syringe To try and push The stopper out And that will uh, Cause a vagal response That will slow down Heart rate uh, Well in this case It isn't so much That the vagal response Is increased Or going stronger It's just that there's nothing to stop it. And I'm going to talk about why that's actually really critical when you're considering things like intubation later on. So, and you may have already figured out just by me saying that, Uh, but anyway, so (laughs) what are some of the main differences that you're going to be looking at versus like a hypovolemic patient? Okay. So the biggest one is going to lie uh, in the heart rate. So, like I said earlier, when the body wants to maintain that blood pressure, it will manipulate those three things. So if you start running out of fluid because you got a hole somewhere you shouldn't, uh, the body will be like, all right, I need to do, I need to do a couple things. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, start increasing the heart rate. I'm going to make the pump pump faster. Second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tighten down, uh, on the vasculature and make the container smaller so that the fluid that I do have that hasn't leaked out of the hole, uh, is going to be able to actually provide a pressure. Well. Yeah. These are the things that will be askew in neurogenic shock. So if you have a patient, uh, particularly a trauma patient with potential spinal injury, and you're like, hey, their blood pressure is low, but their heart rate is doing nothing to compensate for it, or, or indeed it's going slower. Now remember, the heart rate won't necessarily be bradycardic. It just won't be tachycardic to catch up. So if you're looking at someone yeah. with a heart rate of 80... And they should have a much higher heart rate, given you know the fact that I don't know they were just cycling and are in extreme pain and they hit their neck on something. Uh, then you very well may have um, have a neurogenic shock patient because the heart is not responding. Another thing you're going to have is a wide pulse pressure. And that the pulse pressure that's the difference between the systolic and the diastolic number. And the reason for that is directly related to vasoconstriction. So one of the reasons that when you have a shock patient, and you know you guys may have heard this but if you haven't when you have someone who's hypovolemic and they're losing blood you'll actually see the diastolic number start to rise up okay so remember the diastolic number is the amount of pressure in the vasculature when the heart relaxes when the heart's not pushing at all what's the pressure well that pressure when the heart's not pushing at all is pretty much maintained by the constriction of the vasculature so if the vasculature is tight because it's trying to because, you know, you've lost a lot of blood, then that diastolic number is going to come up until, of course, you lose so much blood that it can't help. it And then it all goes down. Yeah. But, yeah, you'll start to see those things narrow. You know, you see blood pressures of like 100 over 90, like stuff like that. But if you're looking at this patient, they have a blood pressure of like 124 over or, you know, let's say sorry they're in shock here. So let's say they have a blood pressure of like 80 over you know, 30 or 80 over and I just can't, I hear it all the way down, you know, like uh, that is a potential sign of uh, diffuse vasodilation, which would really start indicating, hey, this is a neurogenic shock patient.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it makes sense because like when you think about it, because in the other forms of shock, you know, like, Mm -hmm. or, you know, the most common one for trauma, which is hypovolemic shock, because, you know, they're bleeding somewhere, even if it's not external, uh, your, your brain is able to tell your body like, Hey heart, uh, you got to pick up the pace, man. Like yeah. shit's not going well. Like it feels like we're being forced to eat white dog shit right
0: now. <laughs> um, nice. That's yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I don't like that. Let's get the blood pressure up. But in here, the brain is telling it's like trying to send those signals, but it can't because <laughs> those signals are cut off or the spinal cord even on its own is like trying to send out as like, oh, man, this is not good. And the heart's just, you know, like this in is its so own bad. World, Why did you let like- us
0: build this bunk bed?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's blood everywhere. This is so bad. <laughs> Yeah. And it's just not getting the messages that it normally gets to say like, hey, things are going askew. And so the, you know, heart and blood vessels are like, yeah, uh, it sounds like we're chilling. We're relaxing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I didn't think we were gonna get the day off today,
1: but teacher didn't show up. So we're
0: good. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Things are going um, to shit. but that also brings up another thing that I think you can see in some, uh, set of these patients, which is below the area of injury where like that communication isn't happening, their, their body will be, you know, dilated out. So, you know, warm, red, uh, kind of flushed. And then like they will be, uh, above the area of injury, their body's in like, oh fuck, panic mode. Uh-huh. Um, you know, where they're sweaty, they're pale, they're diaphoretic because, you know, their body is a, responding above that area uh, more appropriately.
0: Why are they so um, lazy down there? We're doing all the work up here. What is wrong with those guys? <laughs> the heart's doing jack shit. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Now the tuxedos are a little weird. <laughs> yeah. That. Nice.
0: Nice. Oh man. So there's some other, before we talk about treatments though, I want to kind of talk about some other considerations. So when you had these patients, remember what, how we talked about the vagal stimulus uh, is gonna be unopposed. And so things like intubation, where you can see an increased vagal response just by the fact that you're passing a tube through somebody's throat, uh, can be really bad. So, I mean, Spence, what's one of the things that we get ready when we go to intubate somebody?
1: What's a drug that we, that uh, we carry for this? Uh, push dose epinephrine.
0: Yeah, push dose epinephrine. You may see atropine to reduce a uh, a vagal response as, uh, as well when it comes to that. Because yeah, you can pass a tube and you can see a just the passing of the tube can cause a vagal response. You can see a precipitous drop in blood pressure uh, when it comes to patients. Well, this precipitous drop can be um, let's just how uh, about this amplified. When you don't have a sympathetic system to counter it at all. And so you can see prolonged vagal responses uh, from things like intubation. Here's another yeah. thing to think about: thermoregulation. Thermoregulation mm. is driven hard by the sympathetic nervous system. And this will actually be an issue. This is not, this is not like, oh, that's a neat thing to think about. This is something you need to actively consider, especially with this patient who's in a cold environment, right? Yeah. So because they're going to be vasodilated, one of your body's main ways of causing uh, of, of dealing with um, the temperature in your body, aside from shivering, is vasoconstriction because reducing the amount of surface area of the fluid that flows through your body that's exposed to the elements reduces the uh, reduces heat loss. OK, uh, but if we're going to stay dilated, then we're increasing the amount of surface area of uh, th- that is exposed to uh, external environments and it can actually increase heat loss. So your ability to thermoregulate is greatly hindered in uh, if you are in neurogenic shock. So that is definitely something to consider for cold environments uh, and even environments that aren't cold. Uh, yeah. because these patients may be cold when you are not so really think about warming these patients that's really really important uh, for these yeah. patients so that's yeah. uh, another room thing.
1: temperature is dead temperature uh, dead, in, right uh, by most people yeah uh, <laughs> exactly know, so. not good um, <laughs>
0: so and then one more thing for on the treatments I want to talk about one of the things the scenarios that can actually mimic neurogenic shock and that is trauma patients that are also taking beta blockers so if you think yes. about it yeah so if you think about it a, a beta blocker, is a medication that uh, impacts uh, the body's sympathetic response and usually by lowering the heart rate. And so you may have a patient that is hypovolemic from trauma, but their heart rate isn't compensating appropriately because they take beta blockers as well. Uh, so that is something that can mimic. So history, history, history is going to be important. And by the way, this patient had no meds and allergies. Not that you ever asked, but you know. There's, uh, uh, well, I also kinda...
1: didn't want to, I didn't want to know what their blood glucose was either. And it doesn't <laughs> sound like the crew wanted that either. So uh, I yeah, know. we're in line. I didn't even, yeah. yeah and here's the thing. They, they may have actually told me, I just never wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, nah, it doesn't matter. I just Spencered
0: yeah. the shit out of that one.
1: All right. So let's talk, uh,
0: <laughs> let's talk treatment. Uh, so- Treatments on this one were actually a little bit difficult. I did a lot of research uh, to try and figure out why the recommendations are the way they are. I'll go ahead and give you the general recommendation. The general recommendation when it comes to neurogenic shock is to treat with fluid. Because what you're looking at is what we call relative Hypovolemia, And so well, what does that mean? Well, they're not actually hypovolemic. We didn't change the amount of volume in the patient. Well, we're assuming we didn't because, you know, it, through trauma, all things are possible. But in this specific case, when we have isolated neurogenic shock, you haven't changed the volume, but they are relatively hypovolemic because the size of the container is so much bigger that you need more volume to fill that. So to fill that, you add volume. If it's unresponsive to adding volume, then the recommendation is to move on to vasopressors. Uh, one of the main vasopressors is going to be norepinephrine. Uh, the main reason that norepinephrine is used is because it has both alpha and beta effects, which meaning, meaning that it's going to both increase heart rate uh, and increase vasoconstriction so another uh medication that is also considered is atropine to help with that runaway vagal stimulus so while atropine doesn't really do anything to increase the sympathetic uh response of the body it just helps block that runaway vagus stimulus that uh, that you may be fighting against here's another recommendation though and this one makes a lot of sense to me and that is pacing the nice thing about mm. pacing is it does not require uh, any uh, any cooperation uh, on the body's behalf, uh, at least when it comes to uh, pharmacology. It just does what it does. And that's how pacing yeah. works. Uh, so pacing is a uh, is a consideration to get heart rate up. Now, one of yep. the things one of the questions that I had and Spencer, I don't know if you have the answer to this, but I'm going to kind of put it out there to our community. Uh, I was really kind of curious as to why is Fluid recommended before a vasopressor. So we're talking about and everything I found was like, hey, uh, the reason you give fluid is because it helps uh, make up for the, you know, the the amount of volume that's needed now that we have a larger container. You know, in other words, you're treating the relative hypovolemia. And I'm like, well, I know that's what fluid does. But why don't we get rid of the whole relative problem by just giving uh, a vasopressor? And mm, I am imagining the reason behind that has something to do with the fact that vasopressors are going to have a decreased effectiveness due to the mechanism of the injury itself. Right. I mean, we just have uh, we just don't have. um, Yeah, I I don't know if their effectiveness is reduced in in the same situation like does does the. The injury to the spinal cord uh, also uh, impact, uh, you know, the ability of, you know, oh, the like the
1: the, yeah. the cells, like the, it, it, is you, the
0: neurotransmitter useless? Cells right? Get,
1: yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I think that the they would still respond uh, to the outer cells. Um, You know what I mean? Like I would think so too. Um, but that the, I mean, I don't know. I would, I just, I would think that would be the case where I, where I suspect the recommendation is. And again, I have nothing to base this on, but my, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is me talking out my ass. Um, is that with fluid, there are, uh, were downsides to yeah, administering I mean, fluid outside of lung like, sound, yeah, outside yeah. of like
0: potential pulmonary edema. Which I mean, again, in, yeah. in, in, in this patient, that's not going to be the problem. You know, you, people normally yeah. don't trauma their way into pulmonary edema. It's normally a, <laughs>
1: that's. I mean, they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who knows? But well, oh, no, don't uh, get know, me wrong. So that like, you concern. can. Yeah.
0: I'm just saying it's not usual. <laughs>
1: Um, you know, maybe a tree stump helps. <laughs> I rate this tree stump as three tree stumps firm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nice. But, uh, I would think that the administration of vasopressors could have more downward side effects. And so it might be one of those situations where they're like, well, if you can kind of get where you want with the safer, uh, you know, quicker option of just giving fluid versus, you know, doing a vasopressor, then like, hey, all right, you did the least amount of work to achieve the goal. Whereas if you need vasopress, like if you use vasopressors right away, there could be some potential downside, you know, extra, there, there are risks to vasopressors. So um, th- that would be my thought on why they would do that. Yeah. Um it it is interesting that pacing is recommend recommended cuz uh Chris do you recall a long time ago we were in a case review in which a patient had neurogenic shock yes. and the crew found a bradycardic hypotensive patient and they Decided to try pacing. And I will admit at first I was like, wow, they, uh, clearly did not consider that, you know, the mechanism here because mm. it's very apparent that he broke his neck. But the doctor actually was very complimentary, um, and saying like, yeah, that was a fair thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then the, but what the side effect or the unwanted effect with pacing was that it actually did make the patient twitch and everyone was very uncomfortable with that result. True. That result with the and I understand spinal. that. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um so it, it yeah, that's that's an excellent point to bring up for the pacing.
0: Yeah. Uh so with that, why don't we go ahead and kind of plow through our uh our typical uh, end of call stuff. Let's briefly touch on uh let's kinda of touch on some things. So let's start with uh we'll start with the pregame. So I think on this one I they had actually a really decent pregame, I think on this patient um i mean let's face it the pregame uh, on this one revolved around preparation they did a good job they did a good job you know assessing like hey like we're gonna need extra resources we're gonna need to get forestry on scene um yeah. which by the way i didn't mention much of forestry forestry actually did accompany down, them down to the patient as well so there are two additional people oh, okay. to help play fetch so there's gotcha.
1: that. um <laughs> you know <laughs> nice
0: so what do you um, think of their arrival oh go ahead
1: I was going to say, uh, I think the only additional thing that, and again, this is super complicated. I do not fault them for not considering this, but the rationale, and maybe they would have come to the same conclusion anyway, because I don't know what the benefit to having Dale, who can give narcotics, stay at the command center, um, versus having, you know, uh, him go to the patient. Um, but like that, that is, I mean, ultimately, there was a lo- there were a lot of moving pieces here with a lot of unknowns that they had to factor for. Right. So I that that would be like going forward. I would say uh, that could be included in pre games. You know. Um, yeah.
0: I mean. So I but- think. I, yeah, and, and here's the thing. I, I gotta say, I, I don't know for certain that Dale could open the uh, could have access okay. to, to the narcotics. Um, my my main thought behind that is, is I think once. Once it was realized that it was an issue and they were like an hour and a half away from the patient by foot. I'm like, well, I mean, now it's not, there's yeah. no, because the, at that moment when they were making that decision, the helicopter was 45 minutes away. So there really totally. wasn't a benefit. You know, they're just, yeah, there wasn't a benefit to having yeah. someone walk an hour and a half to be like, oh, the helicopter left 45 minutes ago. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. But now, now, now that you're here, yeah. let's do this fentanyl <laughs> anyway. So yeah, it's uh, a, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and, and so, I and to tell you the truth, like I don't know if this is a safe or or this is what kind of locking mechanism the locking mechanism they had on the rig if it was back at the station or what it was just after
1: talking with them I just realized okay it's it's a bygone at this point gotcha it's it's in bed with the adenosine right just like you can't have us yeah well, so let's talk about the oxygen then because that yeah they made the it sounds like that wasn't something that they. You made it seem like that wasn't something that they just like, oh, shit. Hey, we forgot the oxygen. And they're like, yeah, it's five miles back there. Um, We're not going for it. This was something that they purposely chose to left behind and they had rationale to support. So I want to hear it, man.
0: So I don't know that they purposely left it behind. I just in talking with them. Uh, we we did kind of briefly talk about it. So in the past, I have ranted about like, hey, like don't leave your action bottle tied to your gurney. Don't leave. Don't bring in the minimum number of kits. But these are calls that apply where bringing in those kits does not cause a detriment. And the reason I don't think this is a cut and dry discussion. And again, I'm not really taking one side or the other on this one um, at this point. Maybe you and I are about to talk about it. And, and I will. I've done that before in the show. Um, but uh <laughs> I uh, it's one of those things where. I always kind of look at what is the downside to bringing the equipment and auction bottles. Having been someone who has had an auction bottle top go uh, a regulator, come undone and have the valve be wide open uh, in an enclosed room with the auction bottle screaming around the room at very high speeds. And it gets cold by the way, it ice is over. But anyway, um, I can tell you that dropping one of these bottles is an issue Now, that being said, you know, you can secure the bottles fairly easily. You should be able to pack one in. But then you also got to think about the other side of this is like, okay, I could pack a single D cylinder in. But given how far this patient is, if the patient truly needs oxygen, the D cylinder, one D cylinder isn't enough. Too many deals. Enough D cylinders is probably not practical. A patient who is going to be okay with a single D-cylinder probably doesn't really need that much oxygen in the first place. Mm. So Mm. when I really start thinking about the application of oxygen for this patient, it's hard to find a scenario where it both matters and is safe to transport. Mm. And so yeah. it, or, or practical to transport, because depending okay. on the kind of bottles you have, I mean, they have lightweight bottles, they have heavy bottles. You can significantly increase your weight uh, as you're going. You know what I mean? And D yeah. cylinders are, are fairly large when we're talking about hiking. Most people who hike with oxygen hike with tiny little bottles for themselves and to take puffs off every now and again. You know, it's not the same thing. And so. Yeah. It was hard for me to find a scenario, to find a way to say, duh, you should have brought oxygen or no, you absolutely shouldn't have. And, you know, I mean, it's I I can imagine myself like if you get there and the patient has a pneumothorax. um, Well, but even still, if they have a pneumothorax, the key to that is correcting the pneumothorax. Um, But I can see myself being like, what if I have to intubate this person and now I can't pre-oxygenate, you know, and and there's all these things going on. And it's kind of like, well. Honestly, if the patient's that bad off, you're only going to have enough oxygen to keep them okay for a little bit anyway, and then they're going to yep. be bad off anyway, which given like, I guess I, I would rather have that situation than not at all, at least reduce the amount of hypoxic time they have. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think this okay. is the obvious like duh this, scenario that I would normally yeah, make it out to be.
1: I, I think there might be an argument to be made that, hey, you might not be able to give the full amount of oxygen that you would want to give. You might be under treating by bringing a D cylinder and it might, you might run out. Um, I think it is better to have it, but I, you know, this is one of those where I think we can squarely say like, I, I'm saying that from the safety of like this desk where I'm not hiking. Very true. You know, 40 miles over rough terrain to get to somebody to then like have to plan to carry them out. Um, So, I am open to being completely wrong and having this crew go like this guy has no idea what he's talking about because I don't.
0: No. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's
1: true. But I, in this, yeah, you know, but I, my preference would be if all things were equal to bring the tank and be prepared for the possibility that you may have to under treat to conserve oxygen to. Gotcha get the patient out.
0: And but, I agree with yeah. that. So well, so here it is. I'm going to change my opinion and, and have a hard opinion here. I think bringing yeah. a, at least one DC, D cylinder was was very likely, and and again, I'm in your same position, but it was very likely going to be practical to bring at least one, and if anything, if you had to use the oxygen, if anything, it'd be better to undertreat than to not treat uh, at all. Um, but when it comes to like bringing enough oxygen to last your time down there, that's probably not practical. So yeah. I think the thing I would change, even though didn't impact, impact this patient at all. Um, bring, bring a practical, you know, bring a, bring a D cylinder. Yeah. I w- I would add that all on right. there. Bring, bring a D cylinder. Um, but that again, that's from, <laughs> but again, they may call back and be like, yeah, like we were sidestepping the whole way, barely able to carry what we had. Adding a D cylinder would have been shit. Okay, cool. I stand corrected. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that, that'd be kind of like my only change there. Uh, with that Spence, I think we are we're, uh, we're going to wrap up anything else that, uh, oh, what do you think of, o- I, of their overall treatments?
1: I, I think overall, they they did a really solid job treating this patient. Um It sounds like, you know, like th- this was a rough situation with – and I hate it when you're, you know, ex- suddenly thrust into, oh, God, we're with this person for longer. I mean, the side plus is you get the dog to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, you know, yeah. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, oh, that's that's an – Quick thing
0: – want- oh, sorry, man, unless you're – are you going somewhere or
1: – No, oh. I, the only other thing I would – the only other thing I would say, and this is more of a system issue, um, is – it would probably be a good idea to qaqi uh the response of the national guard to find out what happened in that situation and why there was a delay and they may um, have it, i think they probably did yeah. actually but and i i hope that would be the case cuz that could be one improvement that comes out of it where it's you know it's like oh hey you know someone said not quite the right word to make that activation even though they thought Good but, point. um yeah
0: final thing i want to talk about uh, when we're talking about um a potentially spy an injured patient. Uh, being moved, uh, you know, supine versus uh, staying on their right side. This kind of comes back to what we talked about earlier with the C-collar. I know we all want to leave the patient supine, but you got to remember, there are situations where you will actually keep the patient cocked to one side. Uh, and position of comfort, um, especially when we're talking about a patient who is going to be vomiting if you don't keep them comfortable. Um, uh, yes, th- I mean, it, it's very, if you have the patient on their right side and there's nothing there, ergo, the direct support of the spine is going to be impaired, right? Because when you're laying flat on your back, gravity is going to pull the spine directly down onto whatever mat. And the spine doesn't have far to go before it hits that mat, or in this case, a a vac mattress. You turn them on their side, the spine has more room to shift to the side because there's nothing really stopping it from going that direction. So it is a somewhat less stable position. But let's go back to what we talked about earlier. What is more stable? A comfortable patient who isn't vomiting into their own airway. Uh, or a patient who is <laughs> supine but in a ton of pain. And here's the thing. If they're in a ton of pain, they're still going to sit there. I mean, all, almost subconsciously, they're going to sit there and shift. People yeah. will sit there and shift constantly, and then they vomit into their own airway, and now you have an even worse off patient. So this is one of those cases yeah. where it's like, hey, I know my book says they need to be supine in this neutral inline position, um, but we can't do that. The other scenario you do that with is pregnant patients, and because you're looking out for something called supine hypotensive syndrome, and that is where the mm-hmm. uh, pregnant uterus actually puts pressure on the great vessels and inhibits the yeah. return of blood and reduces preload. And you'll see those patients get uh, really hypotensive. And so on, in those cases, you actually uh, prop them up to one side so that uh, we can take pressure off that, uh, off those greater vessels. So with that, everybody, thanks again for listening to yet another episode of EMS 2020. As I said before, we're going to be in Kearney, Nebraska July 7th through the 9th. Uh, we're going to be teaching and uh, and hanging out. So come by and uh, say hi. If you want your call to be reviewed, go ahead and check out our social media at ems slash 20 on facebook and at ems 2020 show on instagram on instagram uh, on our bio you'll find a link to a beacons page that has a link to the form where you can get your call submitted and on our facebook we have a pinned post at the top where you can also get your call uh submitted uh to us for review uh, if we pick your call for review we will contact you first and we'll uh, we'll get some deets from you uh gosh anything i think that's it uh, yeah boom yeah. uh yeah. see you guys all at the next uh catalina wine mixer bye yeah